When I first became a Christian, I started to read the Bible. And I found myself quite consumed with Christian things. And reading the Bible was one of them. Uh, And I started to think to myself, is this normal? And then I had uh, a moment of light. And that was this. People get excited about the things that they love. And it it happened for me with... uh, This (laughs) might be a bit strange for you, but the thing that came to my mind was fishing. (laughs) Perhaps because it felt for me just as obscure as Christianity in one sense. And I thought, you know what? People get really excited about fishing. And you know what they do? They talk about fishing all the time. They focus heaps of energy on getting the right stuff to fish well. They even have magazines at the the magazine store all about fishing. And then they read those magazines. The point is, this this was a a point uh, that fed into a larger idea, that the thing that we worship, we give ourselves to. Now, don't get me wrong, I like fishing. Um, I don't know much of it here, but... The thing is, what we, what we value, we start to talk about, we get excited about, and we go to the sources that have authority to speak into that thing. And so this morning, Peter, we're in our series in Peter, Peter is going to do that work of reorienting us to what's important and then direct us to the sources that speak about that thing. As last week, uh, we sang a song that was very fitting as a prayer to begin. And we've done the same thing this morning. So I'm going to say again this morning, Amen. Show us Christ. And in some, that f- one of the wor- uh, words in that song kind of capture the sermon this morning. You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Value, eternal life, source. You have the words of eternal life. So, I realise there's probably a few people visiting this morning. Uh, My name's David Dent. I am the assistant pastor here. And we are currently in part two of a four-part mini-series in the book of 2 Peter, as you'll notice we just read. Now, a little bit of context about the letter. The author, uh, Peter himself, is at the end of his life, and he writes this letter to believers that he considers are established in the faith. One of the places we can see that is in verse 12 that we've just read this morning, where he says, uh, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you have. And it struck me that that's perhaps fitting, a fitting description of this congregation. That's how I see it for a lot of people here. But as we saw last week, Peter also knows that for these uh, believers who are firmly established in the truth, he knows that there's still a journey for them to walk. The reason Peter knows this is because he knows that history is not circular, but history is linear. And it's moving towards the great day of God when he will righteously judge all people through his son, Jesus. 
and create a whole new world with nothing bad or sad ever existing in it ever again. But that day hasn't come yet. And so there's a journey, a waiting journey, for the believers to walk. And on this journey, there are dangers. Again, as we said last week, it's a world full of passions. It's a sensual world, a world following its own desires. And at one level, this can be attractive even for believers and tempt them. Not only so, but there are false teachers, even in the church, who secretly introduce twisted forms of the faith, and there are scoffers, scoffers who scoff at the idea of a coming day of judgment. And these things threaten to unsettle the faith of believers, and they even threaten to lead them away from following the truth. And so Peter writes this letter. And what he's doing in this letter is he's reminding them of a number of key elements of the faith. This is what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, this is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And so that's what he's doing for us. Now remember, it's an encouraging letter. Notice his tone in what we've just read then. He's He's warning them in a positive sense, let's say, not in a threatening one. And he's reminding them of of the privilege that it is to belong to Jesus. He's reminding them of God's grace. He's reminding them of where they should focus their energy, as we saw last week. He's reminding them of God's character and God's ways. He's reminding them of the world they live in and what they should expect from it. And perhaps most of all, he's reminding them of the certainty of the day of Jesus' return. And the reason he's writing all of these reminders is so they would keep that firm position that they have while they wait for that return of Jesus. Or in other words, he's writing the letter so that they would stay safe on their journey to heaven. That's the broad shape of the letter. That's the big idea for the letter for us. And so sticking this morning with this idea of equipping us to stay safe... Peter's going to say to us today, stay safe by being Bible people. Now, there she is, she's there. (laughs) My wife's not a fan of that phrase. (laughs) Just flag that up. Nonetheless, you'll note that I stuck with it. (laughs) It's a marriage thing, we'll talk about it later. No. (laughs) We've stuck with it because... I can't think of something better. (laughs) And uh, perhaps its irritation can be redeemed for you and you can be like, ah, okay, right, being Bible people as a phrase that we can kind of, its awkwardity can can, um, grip you. We can talk about the word awkwardity another day. (laughs) (laughs) That's a word as well. Right. So we're in the section of our Bibles this morning marked Prophecy of Scripture. You'll see it there. And the way we're going to do it this morning is we'll begin by looking at verses 12 to 15, which focus on Peter's enthusiasm for his reminding. Uh, And then we'll look at some of the reasons Peter gives for why he's so enthusiastic about reminding. Then we'll take a step back at the end and we'll look at what Peter's trying to do for us and what response he wants from us 
with all of these words. So starting then in verses 12 to 15, Peter's enthusiasm for reminding. Okay, look with me in verses 12 to 15. I'm not going to read the whole thing out again. Instead, I want us to notice the repetition of the word remind in these verses. We see it there in verse 12. Uh, So I will always remind you of these things. Then he mentions it again in verse 13. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Then he mentions it again in verse 15. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. Now, just before we press on, we need to clarify what these things are. He wants to remind them of these things. In the least, he's referring to the virtues that he encouraged them in last week. He wants to remind them of the importance of growing in those virtues. But I think he's reaching up higher than that and he's going all the way up to verse 3. And four, and he's reminding them these things include God's grace and the promises that he's given to us in Christ. But even more than that, as we've already seen in chapter 3, verse 1, the whole letter is a reminder. And so there's a sense in which Peter's enthusiasm doesn't need to be uh, for reminding, it doesn't need to be restricted simply to those few verses, but actually his, his, his enthusiasm extends to remind them, reminding them about the whole council of gospel truth. That's what these things include. Now, what I really want to draw our attention to is how keen Peter is to remind them of these things. Notice that he says, it, <clears throat> notice that he says at the beginning, I will always remind you of them. And then he says, it's a bit repetitious really, as long as I live in this body, I'll keep on reminding you. I'm reminding you now, and as long as I'm alive, I'll keep reminding you. And then he says, and you know what? Even after I'm dead, I'm going to make every effort to make sure that you can keep reminding yourself. I'm so keen to remind you about gospel truth. You see that? Now, there's at least three lessons for us here. The first lesson is about Peter's understanding of the Christian life. We have here the great Apostle Peter, and he is super keen to remind Christians who are established in the truth they have about things they already know. This tells us that Peter knows that even as Christians, we are, as the song goes, prone to wander. Or else why would he keep reminding them? It's like I mentioned last week, it's almost like we have a revert button that gets pressed in our sleep every night and we wake up and we need reorienting again. Now this is an important truth for us to remind ourselves about because one of the lies that we need to keep combating is the lie that the fight should be over. The fight of faith that... The lie that somehow you should have risen above all the temptations by now. You should have risen above all the challenges in your life by now. And that you should somehow be gliding along in perfection. Until the day dawns, we need to keep reorienting and resetting ourselves daily. That's part of the Christian life. And knowing that, 
is a real encouragement in advance for when those days come and that lie comes that says, you must be doing something wrong because you're still fighting. No. It's a daily reorienting. And that leads to the second lesson, which is that a large part of Christian growth is not about growing wider by way of new information, but about growing deeper by way of rehearsing information we already know. Now, of course, we still need to grow in content. I'm not saying that that's an excuse for not learning more. But we also need to grow by being, re-good, uh, by being good re-listeners. This is a lesson that I'm already beginning to teach my children, having to. Uh, as an example, uh, I'll start a bedtime story and Isabella will say to me as soon as she hears the title, oh, I know this one, and reel off the story. And I have to say to her, no, 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 come, come, come back, come back, come back. Let's listen to it again. Not just because there are things that you haven't spotted that you need to hear, but also because part of the point of the story is not just so that we can gather information, but it's about reorienting ourselves to the important things, and it's about worship. It's about listening to God afresh. As an example, we were just reading the other day about the story of Rahab and how Rahab, you know the story, she, she helps the Israelite spies and uh, uh, by helping them she shows that she believes that the God of the Israelites is the true God. And one of the lessons to be drawn from the story uh, is that all the nations, are de- that God's plan is for all the nations to be a part of God's family. It's one of the lessons, right? And we need to, be, keep, rem- we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. And we didn't go into this detail with the kids, but the reality of that story is that Rahab wasn't just any woman, was she? She was a prostitute. So the lesson's deeper than just that all nations can be a part of God's family, but all kinds of people can be a part of God's family. And that's a lesson that we need to keep reminding ourselves of. Because subconsciously, and perhaps even functionally, we can fall back into thinking that Jesus is for a certain kind of person. But he's not. Jesus is for all kinds of people, no matter who their their background, no matter what they've done, no matter who they are. We need to hear that afresh. And so, growing in the Christian life isn't just about growing in width of new information, but about depth and rehearsing old information. Peter's keen to remind. And the third lesson uh, that we can learn from these first few verses is seen in asking the question, why? Why? Why is Peter so keen to tell us about his own enthusiasm for rehearsing the apostolic message? And I think the point here is simply that we would share his enthusiasm. He's telling us so that it would rub off, rub off on us. He's not just, this is not just nice information. Here I am just letting you know how keen I am. No, he's telling us so that we too would catch that enthusiasm and be just as excited to make every effort like he is to help one another make every effort to keep rehearsing and reminding ourselves of gospel truth, of what God has done for us in Christ and how we should respond as a result. That's why these words are here. 
Okay, so Peter's told us that he's keen to remind uh, them about gospel truth, but why is he so keen? Why is he so keen? Well, we've just thought about some of the reasons, and we've uh, listened to some of the reasons last week. But he goes on in verses 16 to 21, in the passage we've read this morning, to give uh, two more reasons for his enthusiasm. And we can tell that that's what he's doing by the little word for at the beginning of verse 16. Look down in your Bibles and notice that. You see that? For, in other words, I'm super keen because, and here we go. And so, in a nutshell, Peter's enthusiastic to remind them of the gospel truth because the message is legit. It's legit in terms of what the message is and it's legit in terms of the authority of its messengers. So let's look at those two reasons in turn. First reason for Peter's enthusiasm, the message is legit. Okay, Peter gets this point across by reminding them of an event he experienced while Jesus was alive. Uh, It was the time when Jesus took a few of his apostles up to a mountain, we don't know which one, and was transfigured before their eyes, which means he changed appearance. Now, I'll read what Matthew says about this event. He says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light." And at that time, Moses and Elijah appear, and all of a sudden, a cloud covers the mountain. And this combination of a, of, of a mountain and Moses and Elijah and a cloud picks up on a lot of Bible themes, and it means that God is doing something really big in this moment. And then a voice speaks at that moment and says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Which is just what Peter's reminded us here. And the cloud clears, Moses and Elijah are gone, and Jesus alone is left. And that's the event that Peter is describing. <clears throat> and looking back in our, in our, uh, at 2 Peter, in verse 17 here, uh, we see that Peter then describes this event as Jesus receiving honour and glory. You see that? Verse 17, he received honour and glory from the Father when this event happened. What he means is that this event on the mountain was about Jesus being designated as God's special king. Because in the Bible, king uh, can also be spoken of, sorry, being God's king can also be spoken of as being God's son. So when Jesus is said to be God's son, he is God's son in two senses. He's God's son in the sense of nature or essence. Uh, That means that he really is God. And this is what makes him, this first sense, is what makes him perfectly fitting to be, king, uh, to be son or king in the second sense. And that is that he's God's son in the sense of his function as God's representative king. That's Jesus. But then Peter says that this experience that he had was not just about Jesus as king in his first coming, but about Jesus as king in his second coming. And this is what he says in verse 16. Look there with me. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming 
of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Now, we know that this, when he speaks about the coming here, he's talking about the second coming because the word that Peter uses there for coming is a favourite word uh, used by the apostles for describing the second coming of Jesus. And it's especially uh, so when it's used together with the same word that we have here for power. Note, see, no, notice there it says, when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Those two words together, idea is we're talking about the second coming. What Peter's saying is he's saying that moment on the mountain was a vision of the future. When the curtain got pulled back and we saw Jesus shine, that was a vision of his future second coming. We got a, win- we got a glimpse into that event. And then, in order to ramp up the gravity of this message, this, what he's talking about, he, start, he uses all this illustrious language. Just look with me. In verse 16, he says, he doesn't say we were eyewitnesses of him, he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then the voice didn't come just from God, he's already mentioned God the Father, the voice came, verse 17, from the majestic glory. And it didn't just come from anywhere, it was a voice that came from heaven. And it wasn't just any mountain we were on. It was a sacred or a holy mountain. Notice all all that illustrious language. It's almost as if Peter is saying in this little section, if you knew how massive this message was, if you got to see what we saw, Jesus' face was literally shining like the sun. It was insane. If you, could, if you saw that and you knew what we're talking about, and I'm talking about Jesus being God's special king, all the hopes of Israel landing on him, he's the one, if you, if you got that, you would be just as enthusiastic as I am about reminding people and telling people about this message. And I hope that by reminding you now, you get just as excited as well. We're talking about something amazing here. And so what Peter's doing is he's doing a value reorientation, bringing us back to what's really valuable. We're talking about Jesus coming again. God's son, special king. And the second reason Peter is so keen to remind is because he says, the the thing is, that message isn't just like a second-hand story. I'm talking about something that I saw. I was an apostolic eyewitness to this event. I was there. He says it in the negative in verse 16. We're not, we didn't devise, it wasn't following cleverly devised stories when we told you about this. No, 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 no. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He takes a little bit of extra pain to get the point across when he says in verse 18, at the emphatic ourselves, we ourselves heard this voice. We were with him on the mountain 
We apostles. Sorry, I should have bumped forward. Second reason, the messengers are legit. What he's doing here is he's stressing his own authority. Really. I was there. That's a pretty powerful witness, really, isn't it? And then he says, and it's not just me and the other apostles who were eyewitnesses of this reality, about this coming of Jesus. He says, this is the message of God's inspired prophets as well. That's where he goes on in verse 19 to say, he says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And we know that he's speaking about the Old Testament. <clears throat> Sorry, in, this, in that verse there, we know that he's still talking about the way that the Old Testament prophets refer to the day of Jesus by that word also. We can tell there that he's still giving reasons why he's so enthusiastic. He's saying because, because the prophets actually point to this day. And we know that he's, um, he's referring to how the prophets speak to that day by what he carry, goes on to say. He says, you will do well to pay attention to it, that is the prophetic message, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns. You see, he's still got that day in mind when he's telling them about the authority of the Old Testament. Now, just a side note, in case anybody's got this bugging them. When he says there that the, uh, when he says, and the morning star rises in your hearts, you see that? Just in case that it got anybody. He's not speaking about reading scripture until you have a particular spiritual experience. I don't think. Uh, rather, he's alluding back to a prophecy in Numbers uh, about a future, and we read in Numbers there, uh, about a future ruler who, who is described um, as a star rising. And so I think the idea is that what uh, Peter's saying is he's saying on that day, there'll be a similar shift in us uh, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, when he says, now we see in part, then we'll see in full, if you're aware of that part of the Bible. Uh, he's, saying, he's saying, in a sense, keep paying attention to Scripture until the day dawns and we are so transformed that we don't need the light of Scripture anymore because the light himself will have come, the day will have dawned, the sun will have risen, and not only so, but even within ourselves we'll have been so transformed that we'll be able to see completely clearly in that moment. So coming back to verse 19. <clears throat> sorry, these are two little kind of, um, two little, uh, just bits of clarification, more, more teaching here. Is uh, I realise that some of you might have the ESV and are, and, uh, are thinking... And your translation says something to the effect of, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, or something to that effect. Either way, however it's translated, whether Peter is simply saying that the Old Testament itself is completely reliable, or whether he's saying that his experience on the mountain makes it more completely reliable, the point still stands. The Old Testament, he's trying to say, is completely reliable. And Peter underlines that point in verse 21. Look what he says. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Can you see what authority is behind the message? The messengers are legit. 
God gave this message through the prophets. We were there on the mountain. The message is massive and the messengers are authoritative. That's why we are so enthusiastic to remind you. Okay, finally, as we come into land, what response does he want from us? So far, we've seen Peter's enthusiasm and we've seen that he wants us to get excited as well. But is there anything else? I think we get a clear, quite explicit intention in verse 19. And this is where we'll round out our time together this morning. Look what he says. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. That's the response he wants from us today. There's a, there's a nice clear takeaway from today's sermon. Pay attention to the Bible. It's funny, isn't it? We know this as Christians, but here we have a clear apostolic word of encouragement. You will do well to pay attention to it. You will do well, Christian. Pay attention to Scripture. You see that? Notice that it's good for you. It's not, it's not a you have to, but you get to. It will do well for you. Pay attention to Scripture. What kind of paying attention, attention are we talking about? He goes on to say, pay attention like a lamp shining in a dark place. Now that word for dark has the connotations of rough or squalid. It's moral darkness. And so here we see the consistency of Peter's message. The world is a dark place. A morally dark place. A corrupt place. A rough and squalid place. And you are on a journey through it. And scripture functions for you like a lamp in the midst of it. And as you walk through the back alley of this world, it guides you away from stepping on the rotten rat or the dog poo or the other trash down the alley. Pay attention like that. Pay attention like you really need it. And it's not just going through the motions of the reading. This is the paying attention in terms of the posture of the heart. We're good at this already, aren't we? We pay attention to things all the time. For example, we pay attention to Instagram gurus. You name your stripe. We pay attention to important academics. You name your field. We pay attention to various celebrities. You name your hobby. It reminds me of that lady who is currently instructing people on how to fix their lives through minimalism. We pay attention. We listen to what she has to say. Now, I don't have a problem with uh, having less stuff and using the stuff that we do have better, but the point is that there are message makers out there and we're all paying attention to someone. What do we really need to pay attention to? What is, going, what is going to give us the advice we really need for what really matters in life? Peter's reoriented our hearts. Now he's saying, go to the scriptures. This is where there's a guidance for you on this journey. 
But he knows that before that happens, we need to make a resolve. And that's what he says in verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. You need to make a resolve within yourself that what he's said here is reliable. We're not going to go to the Word. We're not going to look to the Word if we're not convinced about the message and we're not convinced about the messengers. We need to make that resolve. But then positively... As I said earlier, he's trying to give a positive encouragement. He's trying to direct them, not not in an angry, negative warning. He's trying to say, guys, you will do well to pay attention to this source. What a spring to drink from. Talk about a source of knowledge. God himself giving you guidance for how to navigate your way through this life. What a gracious provision. So, Christian, pay attention to God's word. It will do you well. Let it be like a light guiding you in a dark place. Amen.